In the creation myth of mystical Judaism, the world begins with a shattering. Each human soul, it is said, possesses a sliver, a shard of the light of creation. The purpose of life is to raise the sparks into the heavens, to unite with other sparks, thus healing the divine cosmos. Healing is the purpose of life. Uniting the sparks is its goal. The work of our souls is integration. These are the words of today's guest, and we will find out more about what she was referencing, and we will meet her in just a moment. Hello, everyone. My name is Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. Today's guest, Dr. May Benatar, is a licensed clinical social worker. She's in private practice in Maryland, and she's also the author of Emma and Herselves, a memoir of treatment and the therapist's self-discovery. Dr. Benatar, welcome to Mind Talk. Thank you. Glad to be here. Dr. Benatar, you heard me reading some of your words from the very beginning of Emma and Herself. Right. If you would take a moment to explain to us what you were referencing. Well, um, this is uh, a creation myth um, that's, uh, of mystical Judaism that was created in the 12th or 13th century um, to comfort the exiles of, um, from Spain. Um, the Jews that had been expelled um, or through the Inquisition, through the time of the Inquisition. And the idea was to comfort us um, that dispersion would come together and that this was part of the creation of the world. This was part of the logic of creation. And I used the myth um, to illustrate... uh, something very fundamental about human beings and particularly about my client who was uh, split into many parts, had many selves, somebody with multiple personality disorder. And I thought the creation myth was a good metaphor, wonderful metaphor really, for the work that she and I did together. Well, indeed, as I read it, I I, I thought those exact words, what a wonderful metaphor for, this is perfect. Um, You talked about your client, uh, Emma, and of course that's not her real name, and you used the term multiple personalities. What what do you mean by that? Well, that was the old diagnostic category for individuals who believed, who experienced themselves as more than one self. Um, My client, Emma, uh, had many parts that were segmented that she was some that she was aware of some that she was not aware of that did not feel like her they felt like other and this is a consequence of extreme severe childhood trauma and it's not as rare as was once thought in fact uh, for for a long time it was thought not to exist at all it was just some myth that some had made up. Right, and that that story is still around, (laughs) Um, but in the 90s when I began working with this client, um, it was captured the imagination of the media and the idea that uh, of repressed memories were false and that these individuals um, were making up stories. But if you've ever sat with somebody like this, 
you know that it's real. You know, as we're talking about Emma, it, it occurs to me that there could well be some folks listening who are either in therapy or were in therapy, and they're saying, oh, my goodness, she's talking about a patient. I wonder if that's what my therapist is going to do. Can you speak to that very sure. common concern? Sure. I'm glad you asked that question. Um, I had this client's um, permission from pretty much from the get-go. As I started writing, um, I was no longer working with her, uh, by the way. I should mention to your listeners that I had moved and thus, after a 20-year treatment with Emma, had to leave. I moved from New Jersey to the D.C. metro area. So we had to say goodbye, and we weren't in touch when I began writing, but she got in touch with me, and I sent her a chapter, and I asked her how she felt about it, and she was fine with it. And when I finished the book, I sent her the manuscript, the whole manuscript, and she signed off on it. I could not have published this without her permission. Okay. Um, yeah, so an ethical, an ethical clinician will not publish anything about their patients without that kind of consent. Okay, thank you for explaining that. One of the things that you say um, as uh, you talk about yourself from the professional perspective as a psychotherapist is, and I'm quoting you, um, okay. I've come to appreciate the power of the healing principle in all of us. Everyone has the capacity to grow, heal, and stabilize. That's a powerful belief system that it seems that you carry with you into the work that you have done with every client. Yeah, I try. <laughs> I try. Uh, I, I think that most of us, most clinicians, do have that conviction, that there's a part, and I talk a lot in the book about how we all have parts, the difference between Emma and someone you know, uh, who doesn't have multiple personality disorder is the amount of access we have to those parts. And my belief is there's always a part that wants to grow, that wants to survive. Um, and I draw upon that. You really kind of need that belief system to do sometimes very difficult work. You talked about a, a critical moment in your professional life that really kind of changed your life. Uh, and you, uh, you were in Boston, you were at a conference. Briefly, oh, yeah. briefly tell us uh, a thumbnail sketch of the conference and the response of your colleagues when you returned to work. Right. So um, I think it was in the late 80s, perhaps, that I went with a colleague to a conference at Harvard uh, that where it was called the Psychology of Women or something like that. It was a huge conference. There were 900, almost all women there. And one of the speakers was Judith Lewis Herman, who has since become, you know, widely known as a trauma scholar, researcher, and clinician. And I heard her speak, and she gave a very powerful talk about sexual violence in our culture, how common it was, um, what the effects were, 
and how to work with it. And uh, I was very moved, as were 900 other women, by her talk. And I came back and I gave a little, a little talk to the staff about what I had learned. Um, there was some skepticism. Uh, was rape really that common? Yes, it is. <laughs> um, there's a lot of research on that. And this mostly male staff began referring to me and designating me as the expert on sexual violence and childhood sexual abuse. I was no expert. I had gone to one <laughs> conference, <laughs> and, uh, but nobody else wanted to do this. So that's really how I got started. And you're right, it did change my life. I didn't think about it that quite that dramatically, but I think you're right. And I started to learn and train myself. We're going to take a break, Dr. Benatar, but when we return, I would like for you to introduce us to Emma. She's a fascinating woman. Okay. Folks, this is Pamela Brewer. You are listening to Mind Talk. I'm having a conversation with Dr. May Benatar, a psychotherapist and author of Emma and Herself, a memoir of treatment and a therapist's self-discovery. We'll be right back. Dr. Benatar, today Emma would be uh, diagnosed as having dissociative identity disorder. Uh, so let's Correct. start with there for a second. Is there a difference between uh, multiple personality disorder and dissociative identity disorder? No. Okay. It was uh, just a renaming of the same syndrome. All right. Introduce us to Emma. So Emma was um, in her late 20s when I met her. She presented with depression, not with multiple personality disorder. Um, and it was a whole year of working with her before uh, she introduced me to a part, who I call Louie in the book. And then I realized what I was dealing with. <laughs> um, and Louie, who was 10 years old at the time that he was introduced to me, or that he introduced himself to me, uh, had been behind a lot of the troubles that she was having. For one thing, she was about to lose her license because of many speeding tickets. Um, and you can guess who was behind the wheel, this 10-year-old boy <laughs> who, <laughs> um, she, over whom she had no control and with whom she did not have good communication. Through Louie, I got to know other parts, and in the book I discuss seven of them. Um, they're all children. They were all children. They've grown up. Uh, I'd like to think, thanks to the treatment, that they've grown up, and they're all about the same age as Emma at this point. All right, so let's back up a little bit. Um, sure. The first thing that I, w I want you to touch on is the length of time. You know, we are living in a society, and have been for a while, where many people, if they go to therapy, they're looking for the therapist to tell them what to do, get it all solved, and... If they have to come back a second time, they might, but really, 
one and done is kind of what a lot of people are looking for. Well, uh, in part, that's a result of the insurance environment, you know, where therapy is not well covered. But, um, yes, it was over a 20-year period that I worked with Emma. Some of that time she was out. She dropped out for periods of time and then came back. But the complexity of this case and the fact that I was no expert, you know, at that time, I have more expertise now, uh, made it really, I mean, this is a very complex system. Uh, and their trust is a big issue. And for people to trust any people, whether they're dissociative or not, um, takes time to feel safe with another human being, to reveal your secrets, your fears, your heartache, um, that doesn't happen in one session. Let me ask you a little bit more about Louie. You're sitting in your office with an adult woman, and now you're telling us that there was a time when the adult woman was gone, and now there was a 10-year-old boy. You know, there, <laughs> there are people listening who are saying, what? Right. I know. Uh, I have that reaction a lot. <laughs> I had that reaction with my writing group as I was writing this. Um, you know, I recently presented to a group, uh, an, a, a psychologist said that when he met a woman, I believe, who was multiple, and there was a switch, his curly hair uncurled. <laughs> Your body reacts, and you know that something big has happened. But she had dropped a lot of hints along the way. They were breadcrumbs leading up to this. She had written a letter in which she referred to herself in the third person. Mm. In the handwritten letter, there were different penmanships. She talked about parts and about fragmentation. There were a lot of hints that I did not pick up. <laughs> so when there finally was the reveal, you must say, I had been prepared and then I really felt it in my body that there was this switch. And he said, hi, I'm Louie. And indeed, it was Louie. And I, we had a conversation, and he explained some stuff to me that I was later to, be, to explain to Emma. When you say that, you, uh, that Emma gave you a letter that was in her handwriting, but it had different handwritings, is right. that a typical experience for folks with dissociative identity disorder? Do they have different voices, different handwritings? What, what's actually going on? Well, I think that, there's, uh, that it's usually more subtle. Okay. Um, that's what I've read. I had this very dramatic <laughs> um, case. Um, and and not every, it, it's like a work of art. You know, the brain is a work of art, really, and everybody creates their own imaginative spaces. So each work of art is going to look different, and this is how it looked with Emma. This is by no means a roadmap to understanding all individuals with dissociative identity disorder. But in terms of the penmanship, she actually, when there was an integration, and there, and there were many integrations during the course of the treatment, she had to change her signature card at the bank. Interesting. 
she had to get new eyeglasses because her prescription changed. So there were there were physical changes. Something's going on neurologically that I can't explain. Uh, I don't have enough. I you know I, I don't know enough to explain that to you. But definitely something is going on. The idea that she would need different glasses and need to change her um, bank card really speaks to. I think how separate they are, and then what happens when the the identities, the ego states begin to come together. What right. causes something like dissociative identity disorder, and how common is it? Well, it's about as common as schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, 1% to 3% of a general population, much higher for a clinical population or a criminal population, frankly. Um, but what was the other question you asked me? What what leads to oh, dissociative yeah. identity? How does that happen? Uh, it's well in childhood um, there is an enhanced ability to dissociate, to imagine. You know, children do imaginative play, and in early childhood, when there is severe, repetitive, maybe multiple abusers, sadistic abuse, really extreme situations, the brain, uh, we are designed to protect ourselves, to survive. So there's this segmentation of identity. How it happens physically, I do not know, but I do know how it happens psychologically through the mechanism of dissociation, which we all have the capacity to do, but with somebody under such severe stress, it's enhanced, and the divisions between the parts uh, are not permeable, impermeable, I guess is the word. Does that answer the question? Yes, it does. Okay. The idea that the abuse could be so significant, um, so severe that it could create this kind of uh, response... A sort of a ma- an adaptive maladaptive response to a horrifying situation. Can, right. can somebody experience a one-time only trauma, um, perhaps not child abuse, but in childhood? Uh, can a five-year-old perhaps seeing a parent die? Uh, right. Could that child develop as a result of that one experience dissociative identity disorder? I doubt it, but there might be parts of self that are somewhat dissociative. You know, this, if you think of this as a, a being on a continuum, which is one way of thinking ab- about dissociation, that there might be some fogging out, you might say, okay. uh, or separation from the experience. Like people don't remember. Uh, there's a lot of amnesia in a traumatic childhood that's maybe not as severe as Emma's. A lot of forgetting. Oh, yeah, I, I don't remember anything before the age of 12. Have you encountered that? I mean, that's unusual. Absolutely. Frankly, yeah, it's unusual. And it points to some sort of traumatic experience or, or multiple traumas. You um, say that mild dissociation is universal. We all kind of do that. 
Yeah. Um, certainly, a, a lot of times, if I'm talking to clients, um, as a as an example, I will sort of ask them about driving to work or going on a on a routine. Uh, run, if you will, and you're aware and you're conscious and you're going there and then all of a sudden you're there. And that space in between, perhaps you're dissociated a bit, but it wasn't harmful. Right. Or, you know, we can enjoy a good book or a good movie because we do have the capacity to dissociate and be absorbed. You know, when you're in, a, in the theater and you're in a good movie, you're watching a good movie, you forget for long periods of time that you're sitting in a movie theater. You're in the story. That's dissociation. That's a kind of normal, uh, normative experience of dissociation. So, again, dissociation in and of itself is, is a universal experience, as you say. Yeah. When it is employed, if you will, to survive what in theory many people would see as the unsurvivable, right. that's when it begins to be different. Right. That's when it gets, begins to interrupt functioning. And when someone uh, such as yourself, you're a clinician, you're seeing this person, uh, you're learning over time about who she is and how she is, how does that impact you, not only as a clinician, but just as a human being? Well, it, it was. it's really, I think of it as, having been one of the larger adventures of my life to have learned, um, to have had to learn how to treat this and become a more proficient clinician with everybody because we all have parts. Um, But it was also very difficult. It was very challenging. At the time, this was 1991 that I started with her, and I was in New Jersey, and there wasn't a lot of support supervision, training available to me at that time. So it was very difficult. And you're, lear- you're, you're, you know, you're listening to pretty uh, horrendous stories of child abuse, which of course has an impact on the listener because you're kind of absorbing pain all day um, or, you know, for, with many clients. Because I developed a trauma practice. It wasn't just her. I was seeing other clients with maybe less severe trauma. But it was both a growth experience and um, wounding experience, both at the same time. Dr. Benatar, we're going to take a break, but when we come back, we will absolutely continue discussing Emma and herself. Thank you. Don't go away, folks. This is Pamela Brewer. You're listening to Mind Talk. We'll be back in a moment. Dr. Benatar, one of the parts that you uh, encountered as you were working with Emma was Eve. Uh, right. And Eve was a bit of a challenge for you. Tell us a little bit about Eve. Well, Eve was one of two twins, <laughs> 13-year-old girl parts, um, and she was dead set against the therapy because she felt it put Emma at risk. 
they were taught that any that all of the abuse experiences were to be kept sealed in secrecy and if they were revealed the consequences would be dire so she threatened me and and tried to undermine me and i really i feel like she defeated me in that i never could engage that part of emma in treatment she suffered but the way she dealt with her suffering was to identify with the people who were abusing her um, and to buy into their belief system. And she felt that I was, she was trying to protect Emma. And I was not able to engage her, and there were times when she was quite destructive in the treatment. Uh, but she taught me about parts of myself, <laughs> really, that, you know, that were still intimidated by the 13-year-old bullies from middle school or high school uh, and the bully in my family that left a mark. So, you know, that was part of my learning. And, um, you know, no treatment is 100% successful. This certainly was not. This certainly was not. But Eve was not as powerful as other parts who were more attached to me. I think of her as the anti-attachment part of Emma, uh, the part that was against connection, that thought connection was dangerous. But there were, the majority were on, my, were on the side of the therapy and were very connected to me and loved me. When you say the majority, what number are we talking about? Well, in the book I talk about seven, but there were more than seven, and the number only is an indicator of how many parts they had to make to deal with their suffering. So I never really kept a count. You know, there might be, let's say, 12 uh, in 1991, and then there'd be some integration, and then there'd be a whole other level, uh, layer, <laughs> that would show up in, 19, in 2000 or something like that. Um, so it was a shifting number, and it's not really significant. When you say integration, and you've used that term several times, what does that mean? That means that there's enough growth and trust in the system that, let's say, part A and part B uh, unite and become part C, so to speak. Um, and there's a transformation, it's a, it's a maturation. It's what would normally happen in development. This is at least how I think of it. You know, you're not the same person at 8 that you are at 16. There's things come together, you learn, you mature. And that's what happens in this treatment as she was healing. So it's described pretty vividly in the, in the book um, in one case where there was a pretty dramatic integration coming together of two parts, or one part and the rest. Dr. Benatar, I mean, this is such a fascinating read on so many levels, not only um, from a clinician's perspective, but from a layperson's perspective. And the, uh, and the fact that you have been willing to sort of integrate your own personal experiences with your professional experiences with with the fact of who Emma uh, is and was 
really makes it a compelling read. How do people get more information about what you're doing and, and Emma? Well, uh, my website is, uh, there's a, a tab uh, about my writing and about the book. Uh, and my website is just May Benatar, my name, uh, .com, www.maybenatar.com. And that's, so I think that's B-E-N-A-T-A-R. That's it. That's it. Terrific. Dr. Benatar, author of Emma and Herself, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you. Thank you. And, folks, thank you for joining me on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service, and it is not intended to replace any work that you may choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is available on demand by going to mindtalk.org. If you'd like to send an email in, send it to me, Pamela, P-A-M-E-L-A, at mindtalk.org. And remember to go to the Mind Talk homepage and sign up for our weekly free giveaway. Again, that's mindtalk.org. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. Remember always, if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable. You take care. Thank you.